Good morning. Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in you discover our peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Hear these words. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captive and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were upon him, were fixed upon him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there are many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up to three years and six months. And there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed except Nahum, the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of, out of the town, and led him to the brow of a hill on which they on which their town was built, so they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Um, for those of you who've known me a while, uh, you might know that I have uh, a little bit of a sense of humor uh, but that it's also, I think obnoxious is a good word to use for it. Um, I, one of my favorite things to do is when someone says something and I like half hear it, I like repeat it back to them, but what I heard. So like, 
Someone said while I was half listening, hey, can you go to the shelf and get some bread? I might go, stew myself until it's dead? I, that, what? <laughs> or if someone goes, what did you think about the rain? I might respond over the noise in a room, water you think about is on the brain? What? I, I think it's hilarious. I mean, no one else thinks it's funny, but I think it's awesome. So, you know, I, keep, I continue to do that joke, and people wonder why I work with the teenagers. So, anyhow. <laughs> the reality is, we all get misinterpreted sometimes, don't we? I mean, show of hands, who gets misinterpreted, right? Like, none of you, you've had to backtrack because you thought you communicated to someone but that wasn't what you actually communicated, or what wasn't what they heard? Yeah, okay, I'm not alone, that's good. Now here's a weird question. If that's happened to you, has right afterwards, someone immediately tried to form a mob and throw you off a cliff because of what they thought they heard? Anyone else in here? If you do, you should find some new friends. Just saying. <laughs> okay. Um, we're talking about today's Bible story which is kind of a weird one. This is one of those ones that you hear in church and you're like, I, I really hope he explains that because <laughs> that's a little bizarre. Well, don't worry, I'm going to do that. So far in our Methodism and You series, which we are on the tail end of, we've talked about God. We've talked about how the transcendent God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and truth and that this God interacts with us. We've also talked about grace we've talked about the three ways that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is present alongside us in grace throughout our faith journey. And now today we're going from God to grace to the Bible. Yeah, that's right. They gave the kid who was raised Baptist the sermon on the Bible. The guy who has like, they ask me, hey, do you know this passage by heart? And like maybe seven out of ten times I'm like, oh, yeah, I totally got that one. But this is... This is coming, I'm coming from a tradition where people would go, the Bible says, the Bible says. And, and then I would go, oh, I'm about to get learnt. Like, I'm, I'm about to learn something here. So this is, this is a little bit different than the way the United Methodist Church uh, interprets or understands and looks at Scripture. So in order to look at how we understand the Bible, um, we're gonna look at the Bible, which isn't always the best choice, but here, this is really fascinating to me, so we're gonna do that. There's a reason that we turn to the Bible as Methodists. In the Book of Discipline, there are particular words on Scripture that help us to understand exactly what the book is to Methodists. The Book of Discipline says this, Scripture is the primary source and criterion for understanding Christian doctrine. Through scripture, the living Christ meets us in the experience of redeeming grace. We are convinced that Jesus Christ is the living word of God in our midst, whom we trust in life and in death. The biblical authors, illumined by the Holy Spirit, bear witness that Christ is, that in Christ, the world is reconciled to God. That means that we believe that scripture, uh, as part of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, yeah, y'all remember Wesleyan quadrilateral scripture, reason, tradition, experience? That's right, good, excellent work. 
Bonus points for you. Good job. <laughs> yeah, so scripture is really important in that quadrilateral. Okay? Cool. Now, at, that, at the base of the quadrilateral is not just the book. Not just a book with a front cover and a spine and a back cover and pages. Because we understand scripture, we understand God's word to be a little bit different than just the words on the page. We understand the living word who is Jesus Christ. That's revealed to us in John 1 through 5 and then verse 14. And those verses say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made that have been made, and nothing can be made without Him. And then in verse 14, it says, the Word became flesh. It became a person and made His dwelling among us. So when we're talking about Scripture as Methodists, and we're talking about the Bible, and we're talking about the Word of God, we are talking about Jesus the living Christ. Okay? Good timing. <laughs> All right. That's a lot. That's a lot to take in, and I'm not even done with the sermon yet. So <laughs> hold on. We got a little bit more to go. So the story that we looked at today is a real doozy. It's pretty difficult to pick apart what's going on here without a significant bit of context. So we're going to look at that. This story comes to us from the book of Luke. Now, Luke is a fascinating gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ in which a physician attempts to give a clear account of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry. Now, during this time that Luke, uh, is, the, that Luke is recording these events, Rome is the ruler over Israel. They are a foreign power that has come in. They have taken control, but they've left cultural elements of each area in place. So... Uh, the Jewish people are still allowed to operate in their religious sense, but they owe their taxes and their uh, allegiance to the empire, Rome. Okay. Now, this is a gospel. Gospel means good news. Good job. Bonus points for you, too. Excellent. Okay. So, um, gospel means good news. So, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus is a central figure. He gets most of the airtime here, all right? Now, the author of Luke is also portraying Jesus in a very particular way. Each of the gospel writers portrays Jesus in a different way, but Luke, Luke says Jesus is offering a gospel, a good news, a message of hope for everyone. This is scary. This is scary because we, we understand the gospel now as Methodists, that the gospel is for everyone, that we, that we reach out to all people, we love all God's children, that everything that we do is for the world and for our churches and for those outside. We, we have a global mindset, but, but that hasn't always been the case. And you know what? Maybe that's sometimes not even the case today, but we'll get there. All right. To sum up what happened in this pericope, a pericope is a fancy theological word for a story. Um, Jesus had just been tempted in the wilderness. So he just had all of that crazy stuff happen where the devil's like, throw yourself off a mountain. And Jesus was like, nah, fam, I'm good. So he didn't do that. Um, he said other things. And then, so that happens. And then he goes and starts his ministry. So he has this time of temptation. Then he goes to start his ministry. And he starts at his home. So he goes back to Nazareth, where he was raised as a baby. Like, he was a baby in Bethlehem, 
and then like almost, you know, he had that whole Egypt detour, and then he came back to, uh, to Nazareth, and he grew up there. And so now he's back, and it's, so he's home field advantage here, y'all. He is a rabbi, a teacher, and he goes into the synagogue to teach, and they're like, like, he's like the guest preacher, right? He shows up, and he's like, all right, it's my turn to interpret. And so now the way that, uh, the, way that the Jewish culture does uh, biblical interpretation and uh, these things is, is a little bit different than the way that we do it today. They have a whole uh, way in which they go about this thing. It's called uh, Midrash, and it is a fascinating way to study and interpret scripture. So they give Jesus this scroll, right? And so it's this huge hulking sheet of paper, and they go like this, and he goes and he figures out what, is it, what it is that he wants to read, because he's a guest preacher. He gets to pick. So he goes through, and he finds Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Now, if you are a, a Bible scholar and you just happen to have those verses memorized, congratulations. But if you've looked it up and you look up what Jesus says in Luke 4, 18 through 19, those two verses are extremely similar, extremely, but there are subtle differences. You might ask this question, why if Jesus is quoting from the Bible, does it read differently? You'd think, like, okay, Jesus just goes back. Well, it's not like Jesus had, I don't have mine. I was going to bring my little old Bible that I used to have when I was in, like, middle school. It's not like Jesus had that whole thing together. He didn't have the New Testament and the Old Testament. He had the Bible, which at that point was the Hebrew Bible. The 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. Yeah, Malachi. So, he has Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. And it is in, is it in Hebrew? No, this is the weird thing. So when they took the Bible that was written in Hebrew and they translated it into Greek, it became something called the Septuagint. The Septuagint is named after the 70 scholars who helped translate it. So in this passage, you have biblical interpretation already happening. I think that's really, really cool. Because so often we think of the Bible as this thing that, oh, oh, and now I have it in my hands. It descended from on high and people, no, it didn't work like that. It was a book over time that was written piece by piece and collected but really more from oral tradition. People spoke these stories and brought them into a collection that eventually became written down by a scribe onto a scroll because they didn't exactly have a printing press back in 30 AD, y'all. They had to write down all this stuff. And so Jesus reads from this Greek interpretation, the Greek translation from a Hebrew interpretation of the scripture. And now we have it in English. It's fascinating, y'all. It's really interesting to me. Okay, well, we're going to move on from there. So Jesus reads this scroll from the Septuagint and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says that all eyes were fixed on him when he sat down. Everyone was like, Come on! Keep going! Don't just leave us in suspense here! Because the Nazarites are thrilled, thrilled to hear this passage. Jesus picks this passage and they lose their minds. They go, yes, this is, 
this is Joseph's kid, and he's bringing it today. That's, that's awesome. And, and they go, and they go, okay, because they're waiting with bated breath for Jesus to interpret, for Jesus to preach. We have a moment here where Jesus takes time to interpret a passage of scripture. This is rare, very rare, if ever, that Jesus tells us, yeah, this is what this one means, (laughs) y'all. Like, that does not happen. I'm really excited about this. So are the Nazarites. And the reason they're excited is because they go, you're telling me that we are going to be set free? Yeah, we are oppressed by Rome. We are cut down. We are those people who are oppressed and hurt and beaten down. Jesus, come on. Bring us home. Save us. There's a word for that. Messiah. The Nazarites are looking for the Messiah, and Jesus says this is fulfilled. And so they say, can you tell us who the Messiah is? That's exciting to the Nazarites because that means they don't have to live under Roman rule anymore. So they get all excited that they have a prophet on their side. But Jesus senses what they're thinking and he shakes his head. He says, look, when prophets showed up in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha, when there was no one really left in Israel except for Elijah and Elisha who respected and cared about God, God said this, Elijah, go to a widow, but go to a widow who is not in Israel, even though there were plenty of widows in Israel. Go to a widow in Zarephath. That's, she would not have been a Hebrew. Surprise, surprise. She would not have been one of the chosen people of God. Yet God says, go to her. And you know what happened with that widow? It was super cool. He showed up and was like, hey, can I have something to eat? And she was like, I don't, I don't really have a whole lot. I've got like a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. And Elijah's like, I tell you what, you make me some bread and everything's going to be fine. And she does. She serves a prophet who is not in her people group. And you know what happens? That oil and that flour do not run out, ever. As long as Elijah is staying there, she just gets it. She doesn't have to go buy anything. It's crazy. And then Elisha goes over to this, uh, this captain uh, in the Syrian army, and, is, and he says, and Naaman runs up, runs up to the door, and a servant of Elisha's comes out, because he's like, this is a Syrian, y'all. Again, not one of God's chosen people. And his servant says, go and wash in the Jordan River seven times. And this isn't even Elisha saying that. And Naaman's like, I want to be healed from this leprosy, y'all. Leprosy is a terrible disease. I will do what the prophet says. I will do what the prophet says. Even Israel couldn't do what the prophet said. And so Naaman goes and washes in the river seven times, and he comes back to Elisha, runs up to him, and says, thank you. Thank you. Amazing that the people who were not God's chosen people had more faith than God's people. So he says these words, and that like 
oh, I'm so excited, turns to, ah, I am angry. I am filled with rage. Get out of here, Jesus. In fact, we are going to push you as a mob towards the cliff to throw you off. And Jesus just goes, I, I'm going to head out, and just walks right through all of them. He goes, he, he's like, they don't touch him. And I, I don't know why. I, I think you could use your imagination that people are just so riled up that Jesus is just like, yeah, all right, here we go. Like, I'm just going to want through this crowd, and uh, all right, and I'm out. Or he could have just been like, yeah, no, that's not happening. And people were like, okay, I don't know what happened. It doesn't say, but it's interesting to imagine what happens. So it's interesting to me that Jesus, Jesus rarely, if ever, has the opportunity to tell us what the Bible means, and he does so here. Isn't that, that's the Holy Spirit's job, right? The Holy Spirit guides and illumines both the authors and the readers, and they are inspired as they read scripture. But in this case, we have Jesus on record saying, this is what this means, and I don't know about you, but that's significant. And Jesus chooses to go on record to say, the oppressed, the poor, the captives, and the blind are those I have come to save. Not only that, but the poor, captives, the oppressed, and the blind are not limited to one people group. It is for everyone. Luke's universally, radically inclusive gospel. Everyone gets this. Everyone gets to be set free. That's good news, people. That is good news. Everyone is offered the opportunity to no longer be oppressed and to be set free. But the Nazarites did not see it that way. They saw that as bad news. How dare you? How dare you open up the doors to everyone, Jesus? The audacity. Salvation is for us and for us alone, for God's people. They don't belong in our club. How dare you, Jesus? Rome is giving us so much trouble, and you want to throw your pearls before those swine. You see, folks, when we misinterpret the Bible to declare that salvation, grace, love are all about us and no one else, we have not read the Bible correctly or faithfully. The Book of Discipline talks about a few ways to interpret it with wisdom. One, we interpret individual texts in light of their place in the Bible as a whole. So if the Nazarites could have seen how Jesus was using the whole Bible, that he didn't just say, it's this one verse, and that's it, rather than just two verses out of it that suit their own personal needs, they may have been able to hear what Jesus said without forming a mob. Secondly, as we open our minds and hearts to the word of God, who is Jesus, through the words of human beings inspired by the Holy Spirit, faith is born and nourished our understanding is deepened, and the possibilities for transforming the world become apparent to us. If the Nazarites could have seen Jesus' interpretation as a way to be transformed and to say, no, you're right. Why wouldn't we want all people to be set free? If they could have been transformed, then maybe they could have seen a better world where all of the oppressed go free. Thirdly, 
There needs to be a critique of our interpretation. We are aided by scholarly inquiry and personal insight under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. As we work with each text, we take into account what we have been able to learn about the original context and the intention of the text. In this understanding, we draw upon the careful historical, literary, and textual studies of recent years, which have enriched our understanding of the Bible. So we take time to think, how have other people thought about this too, instead of just me? Because the Holy Spirit can guide us, not just through inspiring us, but through the inspiration of others just like when the Bible was written, just like when those experiences happened that people wanted to pen. Our theological task is critical in that we test various expressions of faith by asking, are they, are they true? Are they appropriate? Clear? Cogent? Credible? Are they based on love? Are they based on love. If the Nazarites could have seen how Jesus's interpretation brings the current age into light and how this interpretation is based on God's overwhelming, all-encompassing love, and how the history of their culture influenced their interpretation, it is entirely possible that they and everyone around them could have had an enriched experience with God. But the reality is the Nazarites did not see the Hebrew Bible in that way. They saw it as a ticket out of their problem. But the Bible isn't a ticket that you can punch to get on a train to solving whatever problem you have. From the Book of Discipline, again, our theological task is constructive in that every generation must appropriately and creatively use the wisdom of the past and seek God in the midst of their order to think afresh about God, revelation, sin, redemption, worship, the church, freedom, justice, moral responsibility, and other significant theological concerns. Our summons is to understand and receive the gospel promises in our troubled and uncertain times. We cannot read the Bible destructively to tear others down, nor as a get-out-of-jail-free card. No, as Methodists, we are called to view the Bible constructively to build others up and to set the captives free. We as Methodists understand the Bible in a way in which we know and understand who God is and then we show that God to the world through love. But that does not mean that we take the words on the page just totally literally and use it to fuel our own personal agendas. It means that we take the Bible seriously that when Jesus says the good news is for the poor, the captive, the oppressed, and the blind, he means all of them, even the ones we want to justify don't belong. Here's what you can do. You can reread the vows that we take as Methodists at a child's baptism. And remember that we are called to resist evil, injustice, and oppression. The Bible is not always easy to interpret. I get that. I went to school for years, and I still don't have it figured out all the way. I'm not ever going to. But Jesus kind of figured this one out for us, y'all. What you ought to do. What you ought to do is join a Bible study that's offered here at church. And when you read the text, read it in such a way that love is the primary lens through which you interpret Scripture. What you ought to do is read the Bible critically. Read the Bible constructively. 
And remember that it is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that guides your interpretation, not your personal vendettas. Don't be like the Nazarites. Be a Methodist. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.